Um, before we get started, I just want to open up with prayer real quick, please. Uh, dear Heavenly Father, we come to you today, Lord, um, as believers, uh, and we just pray, Lord, that this class is edifying. Help us to um, search your word, Lord, uh, for your commands, to understand uh, our responsibility as believers to give a defense for the hope that's in us, Lord. Uh, we just pray that uh, this is, again, edifying for all of us. Uh, we pray that uh, any questions that people have through the course of this that we can answer or any questions that, um, you know, their friends and family members may have that we can bring those because we can, we can give an account because we follow the one true God and the one true faith. And we just thank you for that, dear Heavenly Father. And uh, we just pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, first and foremost, uh, thanks for the kind introduction and thanks to the elders for giving me a chance to do this. Uh, yeah, I just... I haven't been around much. We went up to, I was uh, up in Indiana for kind of the Christmas season because my graduation from Southern Seminary was, we went there and then went up to Indiana and were gone for about two weeks or so. But um, uh, so one of the things I want to say is that kind of my hope for this class is that this isn't necessarily like a, just a sermon or like a monologue, but a dialogue so we can hopefully ask questions. Um, this, this first one, as an introduction, we're not going to be getting too deep into kind of apologetic arguments or material per se. I just want to kind of lay the groundwork, a, a proper understanding of what apologetics is, what it looks like, um, and what the Bible has to say about it. Um, so going forward, this can be the introduction. Um, kind of the next class or two is going to be talking about truth and how we can know that there's absolute truth the um, trustworthiness of the New Testament, and then going in and talking about um, the what you call the veracity of the New Testament and how we can know um, the things and the claims of Christianity, of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, uh, we can trust in that. And that we can know it's true not just through um, belief in it, but through rooted in historical, factual evidence. Um, so that's going to be, and then at the end of it, we're going to kind of finish up with uh, what we would call the, the, the problem of evil or understanding of what, the evil and suffering in the world. And as we go through, again, I want you to ask questions on kind of the, the subject matter that we're talking about. But my hope is that as questions pop up, um, that you bring those to me kind of outside the, the scope of the class, because my hope is that the last class will be we kind of, as a body, go through all those questions and have a dialogue and discourse about that kind of stuff. So, um, so this class again, it's going to kind of really kind of the big three questions that people often ask is like, well, what is apologetics? So how do we define it? What does the Bible have to say about it? And then also, well, how is it applicable? Because sometimes people who know what apologetics is, they kind of see it just as this like high removed academic kind of thing that like you know guys sit on a stage and debate about, right? That's kind of the way people view it. Um, so I want to share some, uh, really two stories with you. Um, now there's many great conversion stories that relate to apologetics. We as a body just went to go see the most reluctant convert of C.S. Lewis. Um, very, uh, you know, just quick backstory. You know, World War One veteran saw the evil that was in World War One and felt that he couldn't follow a god that looked like that. And through his academic studies and and searching things, he came to the realization of the true God. Um, and so, you know, there's many historical examples of this, but I wanted to give you 
um, my for one my conversion story because really for me my conversion uh, was really based in apologetics and that's why I have such a heart for it um, and I'm going to save the, the second story um, for the last part of this um, but God God's use of Christian apologetics as a means of grace in, in my life is, is a prominent overarching theme um, though it took several years for the spirit to really affect my conversion and my true spiritual growth and wrestling with these things, God drew me to him through reason and his revealed truth. Uh, my story starts as a child. Um, I was raised Catholic, but I would call myself kind of uh, nominally Catholic. Um, despite my mother's kind of best efforts uh, during my childhood, I would have considered, you know, like I said, nominally Catholic. And we would just, my religious expression was going to Easter Mass and Christmas Mass and then maybe you know, occasionally offering up a, a, a prayer, you know, when times got tough. I mean, really, my view of God was equally as weak. I kind of viewed him as this kind of like cosmic genie that like if I did the right things, then he would like give me what I wanted. Um, and I took these these really poor and misunderstood views of who God was and his nature with me to um, when I went to college. Um, and so I, I really abandoned any faith that I had. Um, I, my undergraduate, well, I was a philosophy major and I kind of, a you know, just a cursory kind of s s shallow view of looking at these human types of philosophies. I kind of walked away from any faith that I had. Um, but despite this, God would use reason and Christian apologetics unbeknownst to me to draw me back to him. Now, there's a man named Francis Bacon who's famously known for saying, it is true that Philosophy inclineth a little philosophy inclineth man's mind to atheism, but depth in philosophy bringeth man's mind about to religion. And I can personally attest to this. As I said, it was my shallow review of several, like what you call postmodern philosophies, um, that led to my declaration of agnosticism. And however, it was my then my in-depth further study of these same philosophies and their problems combined with in-depth study of more rational Christian philosophy, philosophers that brought my mind about to the reality of God. I can remember many revealing insights that God gave to me in my path of conversion. The first was pertaining to the nature of truth and as to whether or not absolute truth could exist. And I can remember spiraling around in my mind trying to understand or embrace what the absence of absolute truth looked like. Um, it was the spiraling thoughts that I finally realized that for my reasoning and any rational conclusions to make any kind of sense, there would have to be absolute truth. And without absolute truth, the things that I put my faith in, my logic, my reason, would be absolutely meaningless without the bedrock of some type of absolute truth. So I kind of, I, to myself, I was like, okay, I can, there has to be some kind of absolute out there, right? And so not long after that, realizing there's absolute truth, I found myself wrestling with kind of some of the big famous apologetic arguments, what you call like the cosmological argument, which has to do with, well, if the universe coming into existence, how can we, how can the universe come into existence without a cause? Uh, the theological argument or the argument for design that we see in the universe and in nature, and then the moral argument for the existence of God. So I, agreement with these, these claims came pretty quickly to me because they're, they're very, straightforward, reasoned, and internally consistent, meaning they don't contradict each other. 
However, my acceptance of these arguments only produced a level of theism or a belief in some type of God, not necessarily the God of the Bible. Um, I would have to, I would have to say, you know, I was maybe like spiritual and I believed in, you know, just some kind of amorphic God in space kind of thing. Maybe even a level of deism per se. Um, but he, God wouldn't let me stay there for long. Um, I began to look, from then, I began to look into world religions and their belief systems and what they say about their nature of truth and reality. And there's a prevailing view in American culture today that somehow all religious belief leads to God or the divine, right? You know, it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you believe, kind of spiritualism. However, when I started to look at world religions, I very clearly saw that each religion made their own exclusive and unique claims of truth. Um, also, the world religions give very specific ways onto salvation or enlightenment, right? Specific ways that by their very nature exclude the prescribed ways of the other religions. You know, if, if belief in Allah and Muhammad and the, pro, you know, the prophet, that's how you get to salvation in, in Islam. Well, by its very nature, if you believe something outside of that, then it, they can't. They contradict each other, right? So they, they are, are mutually exclusive. Additionally, the practitioners of the world religions themselves don't take this view. It's really an American-created view. Um, and just like, for example, like Hinduism is like one of those kind of big ones that people say, oh, you know, all, all ways you worship God lead to God, right? Well, ask the Hindus and the, 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 the Christians in India who are persecuted by Hindus because they believe counter what the Hindu belief actually is. And Hinduism being kind of this, especially in today's culture, being this big spiritual kind of thing, that they say these kind of ecumenical things. But no, the true, the, that at source, it is exclusive. So it was, so if the truth claims, okay, so if all the truth claims that each religion makes are mutually exclusive, then I can look, then you can look at the truth claims of those. And if what they are saying is true, then by their very nature, the other ones are not true. So it was at this point that I started to look at this, and this, this is where I came face to face um, with the God of the Bible and with Jesus Christ. See, the Christian faith is an amazing one because its central truth claims are rooted in historically verifiable offensive events of Jesus's life, miracles, and resurrection. If anyone knows who Jordan Peterson is, uh, he recently made a, a video kind of talking about this, of the uniqueness of the Christian faith and that we have this, what he call, kind of called the, you know, and this is using his secular non-Christian talk, but this kind of like understanding of the divine that other religions make claims to, but yet Christianity, we have the intersection of that in the person of Christ and that this is unique throughout, of whole, throughout all of history. And so um, while other claims make or other religions make claims of God and the divine, they don't, they don't have that. It's, Christianity is unique in this. Um, and Jesus, not only that, but Jesus makes bold claims about who he is. He wasn't just a good teacher. He makes claim, claims about his divinity, his power over death, his authority over creation, his ability to forgive sins, man's separation from God, and, and Jesus' ability to reconcile man back to God. And then Jesus, again, backs all this up with historically verifiable miracles 
and his death, burial, and resurrection. And through this long path of several years, this is where I was confronted with the true God, the truth of Christianity. Um, and that's, even though it took me years to wrestle with these truths, um, God used, the, used apologetics as a means of grace to bring me to himself. And God uses all kinds of means of grace. He uses us to accomplish his plans and his purposes. And he uses all kinds of different manners. Apologetics is often just one. Um, people have other conversion experiences, and we could ask everybody in this room, and they would have all different ones. But apologetics is, is one that, is, that affected me, and it's affected many people. Um, so hopefully this kind of gives you an insight into that the one question of, well, what is the applicability of this? How does this, um, how does this affect me or, or my friends or my family? So um, Scott kind of talked about this. So we're going to go in, well, what is apologetics, right? So again, like Scott said, apologetics isn't apologizing for anything. Uh, I had a fellow seminary student one time tell me his undergraduate professor didn't like apologetics because he said, we as Christians have nothing to apologize for. Now, this again, this illustrates a common misunderstanding as to what apologetics really means. Um, and it really sh also shows the professor's denial of the biblical command or a warrant for Christian apologetics. And see, so apologia, like Scott said, means a defense. Okay, so what there's a difference between a translation and a transliteration. So translation is like apologia, defense. What we've done is we've transliterated, which means we take the word and we make a similar word in our language, but it doesn't necessarily capture the true meaning of it. An example of this would be like angelos in the Greek. We translate that as angel, but it actually means messenger. That's its, its translation is messenger. Now, there are heavenly messengers, yes, that are, we would call angels, but this is an example of where kind of where this confusion comes from. Apologia means a defense. Now, the New Testament and other writings from the same time uh, give it, can give us insight as to, well, what is apologia, what does this defense look like? So if we kind of do a word study and we see it, it's oftentimes really used in like a, a legal sense, in a logical, rational, or reasoned way. So I'm going to give a couple of examples of this. So in Acts 22, Paul has made his final trip to Jerusalem. The city is stirred up and a mob tries to kill him. He's taken into Roman custody and authorities take him in. He's given a chance to speak to the mob concerning the accusations against him. And he starts by saying, brothers and fathers, listen to my defense in the Greek apologia before you. Then he goes on for almost a chapter systematically addressing the accusations against him. This scene in Acts 22 is the first in a series of events where we see Paul standing before high-ranking officials giving his apologia. In Acts 24, Paul is standing before the Roman governor Felix and says, I am glad to offer my defense, again, apologia, in what concerns me. The term shows up in Acts 25 with Paul's tribunal in Caesarea, and in Acts 26 when Paul appears before um, Herod, King Agrippa. Herod Agrippa. So every use of apologia in these series of events and acts in the New Testament as a whole denotes a very thought-out, reasoned defense. Also, there are many other instances where the, the 
specific term apologia isn't used. It doesn't specifically show up in the text. However, we see that somebody is standing and giving a defense of their faith. One of these Pastor Greg just talked about on Sunday with Stephen. Stephen sees, he's brought before the council, and he proceeds to give his reason defense. He's pulling from scripture and he gives his defense. Now, the, the specific, sometimes word studies are good because they give us insight into stuff, but we also have to think about like, well, what does that word mean? So what do we, even though that word apologia isn't specifically used in this instance and many others, all throughout the book of Acts, you have series of men standing up and giving reasoned defenses. Paul in Acts, Acts 17, it's, it's all over the place. So <clears throat> these, and these were, were empowered by the Spirit when we give these, right? When, the, when these men are giving their defense. But that doesn't mean that somehow they weren't prepared for that. You know, Stephen, like Pastor Greg said, Stephen was likely just a, was a waiter, but he was in the, the Jerusalem church and he knew his scriptures and he was able to recount the scriptures. So it doesn't, it's not like it's, there's an absence of, it, of preparation or that there's somehow just a, a, an emotional response to giving a defense for your faith. So understanding how apology is used in its implications will help us better understand um, kind of the main verse that we're going to look at, which is 1 Peter 3, 15 to 16. Now, this is kind of the, what you would call the, a quint, the, <clears throat> the quintessential apologetics passage. And it's going to be kind of the main text we look at to understanding what Christian apologetics should look like. Um, and we're going to do it, but I want to, I kind of want to frame this a little bit further because I know um, there's kind of, because Christian apologetics or apologetics as a whole has a tendency to be a little bit more academic or, you know, using our minds to do this, right? Um, and it's something we have to think and reason through. We have to think well about things. And to this, some people might object. Some will say, well, the Christian walk doesn't entail, you know, such pursuits that somehow Christianity is about an experiential faith or that it's just about being spiritual or being, you know, emotionally invested in it. Well, first I want to take us um, to Matthew 22, verses 33 to 39. And this is where um, there's a lawyer from the Pharisees and he's trying to trap Jesus in a, you know, and ask him, well, what is the greatest command? Okay. When the Pharisees had heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they came together and one of them, an expert in the law, asked a question to test him. They said, Teacher, which command in the law is the greatest? He said to him, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important command. The second is love your neighbor as yourself. We see here that loving the Lord your God with all your mind is part of the greatest and most important commandment. We cannot do any of these to the detriment of the other. We can't just love God with all of our heart to the detriment of loving him with our mind because we're supposed to love God with all of our being, which includes our mind. Now, admittedly, some of us tend to love God or ex more in different ways, right? Like, I have a tendency probably to, to love God more with my mind. Some people have a tendency more to love God with their heart. Um, but we can't do this to the, you know, I can't sit here and just love God with my mind to the neglect of my heart and my soul 
And you can't just love God with your heart and your soul to the detriment of loving God with your mind. We're to love God completely with all of our mind, with all of our body, with all that we are. So wouldn't loving God with our mind include, you know, our, our cognitive faculties, our reason, our logic, and thinking well about stuff? In, uh, in the same kind of thread, Romans 12, uh, we are told that we are to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present yourself as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God and what is good and acceptable and perfect. See, not only is he telling us to renew our minds, but also, do you catch that? His using of our minds is how do we discern what God's will is? We understand his word. We understand his character, his nature. Using our minds in the Christian walk is vitally important. Though it seems in the broader American church culture today that our faith is merely like a default experiential thing. It's not, and we can see in scripture that it's not. Another kind of piece I want to add to this kind of framing of properly understanding apologetics is that sometimes, now apologetics isn't, and we'll kind of get to this more, because part of apologetics is our action too. Um, but there is reliance to a certain degree of philosophy um, in Christian apologetics. And some people will say, well, um, that, that has no place in Christianity, right? And they're the kind of the, the bedrock one, there's only one place in the entire New Testament that uses the word philosophy, and it's Colossians 2.8. Okay, and I'll go ahead and read it. It says, this is the one, or so, sorry, see to it that no one makes you take captive, or see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Did you, and if you catch that, here Paul is not outright condemning philosophy. Rather, when you look at the, the verse in the text, what you find is Paul is saying, wasn't saying philosophy is bad. He's warning readers against bad philosophies. Or as he says, philosophy is based on human tradition and the elemental powers of the world and not on Christ. So we can have philosophies based on human traditions, humanistic philosophies that that elevate the, the self and, you know, uh, hedon, these, you know, it's all about you and who you want to be and all, you know, there's a myriad of bad philosophies that are out there, but there's good philosophies that are rooted in Christ and who he is and his character and his nature. And it can be revealing and it reveals his truth and who he is. Um, also, we have to keep in mind um, that some will also say, too, here, philosophy isn't what, when Paul uses it in this, in this context, it's not what we think of as, like, the academic pursuit of philosophy, like, today, right? Um, there's various meanings from this period, and depending on the context, it could mean be translated as religion, speculation, or investigation. So some would say that Paul, since he's using the Greek term philosophia with the idea of elemental spirits, of the world, he might even actually be speaking more towards religious practice rather than what we think of like the academic pursuit of philosophy or thinking, really, because philosophy is just thinking well about things. 
You know, and even still, if you say, well, we can't use philosophy to in Christian apologetics, well, that's actually self-refuting because that's a philosophical statement or claim. So you, you yourself are using philosophy to make the claim that we shouldn't use philosophy. So um, also, if we take what Paul does and say Acts 17, he's, it very clearly says he's talking to and reasoning with Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. These are classical kind of Greek philosophers, right? And he's talking with them, and he goes to the, uh, their, their main meeting hall, and he, he speaks to them about this, un, this unknown God that's written around in Athens, right? So it seems that even Paul himself, the writer of Colossians, is himself engaging in some type of philosophical pursuit. So the big takeaway from this is that philosophy is not here prohibited by Paul in any way in Colossians or anywhere else. Also, know that apologetics isn't just philosophy either, but it can be a piece of it. And sometimes I know that people take, not offense, but they'll, they'll, they'll think, well, this has no place in a Christian, Christian walk or something of that nature. And that's, I think, categorically not true. So with the understanding of the word apologetics and everything we just discussed, now we're going to get to 1 Peter <laughs> three fifteen to 16. So, so I'll go ahead and read it. Uh, but in your hearts, regard, regard Christ the Lord as holy, ready at any time to give a defense, an apologia, to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that when you are accused, those who disparage your good conduct in Christ will be put to shame. So in this passage, we can clearly see the command of being prepared to give an apologia, being prepared to give a defense. But then the question kind of follows, well, who is this command given to in the passage, right? Now, we all know that Paul wrote what they call a pastoral epistles, that like First and Second Timothy and Titus. And these are directed towards the leaders of the church, right? However, this is not what we have here in 1 Peter. Peter tells us at the start of this text who he is writing to. And I'll go ahead and read uh, verses 1 and 2, or chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those chosen, living in exiles, dispersed abroad in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient and to be sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. So Peter is not writing to just leaders here. He is writing to a whole host of believers. This in turn means the command to be prepared to give a defense in 1 Peter 3.15 is a command to all of us. It's not, see apologetics is not just the job of, you know, seminary students or pastors and elders or, you know, the most mature Christians. Rather, it's the job of the whole church. Now, there's a, uh, a Christian apologist named J. Warner Wallace. Uh, he, was, he was raised Mormon. He was a uh, L.A. cop, and he came to faith in Christ through apologetics and stuff. And he has an interesting book called um, uh, Cold Case Christianity, where he kind of looks at the witnesses' accounts. And um, he has a saying. I always like to use it because it, it makes sense to me, because it kind of shows how we have a tendency to think about apologetics in the church. 
He says, we don't need another $1 million apologist. You know, we don't need another C.S. Lewis. What we need is a one, we need $1 million, $1 apologists. Okay. So you don't need to be, we, we, the church doesn't need another C.S. Lewis or I'm not say Robbie Zacharias or some bad stuff that came out about Robbie. Anyway, but um, you know, we don't need another C.S. Lewis. We don't need another J. Warner Wallace. We don't need these guys that like have, think they have all the answers and they've got it all, you know, figured out and they, they read all the books and everything like that. What we need is we need people who are able to defend their faith and then go out and be able to do that. Because see, apologetics is an important part of sharing the gospel, which will be kind of, this is the next part that I want to illustrate to you in unpacking of this verse. Now, central to understanding what our apologetic would look like is what our defense is rooted in, okay? So give a defense to anyone who asks for the reason for the hope that is in you. So our defense is centered in our hope. Well, what's our hope? 1 Peter 3, 1, 3 tells us, Blessed be the Lord, or blessed be God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So our hope in turn and our apologetics are centered in the resurrection, the new life, and eternal assurance that is found through Christ's completed work on the cross. Our defense or apologetic is not just arguing for the sake of arguing. Not only is the gospel the center, but also we are called, as we see in verse 16, to give our defense in all gentleness and kindness. You see, apologetics is a, is a means of grace. The true power is in the gospel. It's not in our arguments. It's just a means that God uses to remove barriers for people. In this way, too, apologetics and evangelism are two sides of the same coin. See, when we give the gospel and we spread the seed, like Pastor Greg says, answer questions will arise. If you share the gospel, people will ask questions. You know, you, you, get, you talk to them about Jesus. You know, example, like, you know, you're telling someone about Jesus and his death on the cross and what that means for us as sinners, you know, separated from God. And they just turn to you and go, well, well how do I know the New Testament's true? Your response might center on things like, Apologetic arguments like textual criticism or the thousands of copies of the New Testament that we have, right? All these are, you know, apologetic responses that this person's going to have. I'm telling you about Jesus. Well, I can't, I don't know if I can believe in the New Testament. I don't know if I can believe in the Gospels. Well, where's your defense of why you believe what you believe? Because those questions are going to arise, especially if somebody's actually dialoguing with you and is. You know, it's not just like you're throwing, casting your pearls before swine and there's like, okay, yeah, whatever. But if they're actually engaging and this is something that means something to them, then those questions are going to come up. So apologetics is on the same, two sides of the same coin, apologetics and evangelism, because they're going to come up. Those questions are going to come up. So we have to understand that the, that apologetics and the gospel are inextricably intertwined. You can't separate them. Also, apologetics is not just for the unbeliever, but it's for the believer as well. 
So in verses leading up to the main text we looked at, Peter says in verse 13, Who then will harm you if you are devoted to what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear or be intimidated. But in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy, ready at any time to give a defense. The truth of our hope in Christ encourages us and strengthens us. Apologetics helps us to more deeply understand the truths of the gospel. And in doing so, it gives us confidence for evangelism, but also grounds us in our hope. So we, when the hard times come, we know we have nothing to fear. You know, because I know, because people have this tendency sometimes, well, if I kind of engage with these questions of, that people bring about the gospel, well, then, you know, will that shake my faith? It's like, well, no, because your faith is true. And if you understand your faith, those, those naysayers or those things that people say, well, you understand how to defend against that. But also, you can go through, well, these are all the reasons why this is the true faith. Right, So it, it roots us and it, it grounds us and it helps us to be more secure in our faith. Now, there's one more aspect I'd like to, to draw out um, from the passage. Um, and it starts in verse 15. But in your hearts, regard Christ the Lord as holy. And in verse 16, do this with all gentleness, respect, keeping a clear conscience so that when you are accused, those who disparage your good conduct in Christ will be put to shame. So essentially what Peter is saying here is he is calling us to a life of holiness regarding the holiness of Christ in our hearts. See, our, our holiness and our, our transformed lives are evidence of the hope that's in us. Our changed lives are the fruit of the truth of that hope, right? Because if if... If we say Christ did these things, and if we say the Spirit does these things in our hearts, and He makes us a new creation, that is evidenced in our lives. Now, we're, none of us are perfect by any means. No, we, all, we still have this flesh on our bodies. Um, we're not you know, in the new creation. But people see that. That's part of our apologetic, is living a holy, Christ-filled life. And our, again, our hope is the center and focus of our apologetic, and our holiness helps us show that truth to the world. So, as I said, I wanted to uh, kind of give you two stories. Um, first was mine. The second one is my, uh, my grandfather's. Uh, so, this goes back to, about, I'm trying to think, 2017. Um, I got off of active duty with the Army, started working <clears throat> with the VA. I was working with them for about three years. I actually had gone to seminary for a little bit previously, or was taking classes, but I kind of devoted myself to uh, my federal job, my career. Right? So, <clears throat> but I really felt God was calling me to quit my job and go to school full-time. Um, and so I did. And it was about this time we had recently had our... Uh, third child, Phoebe, and um, I always tried to keep in touch with my grandfather. He lived on the other side of town. This is up in Indiana, where we're originally from, uh, about 45 minutes away. I tried to meet up with him once a month, you know, every, every couple months um, to just, you know, love on him, see how he's doing. My grandmother had passed away a couple years prior. Um, but 
you know, life happened. We just had our third child and it had been several months since I had talked to him. I was, you know, caught up with doing my job and all this stuff. And when I, uh, I quit my job to go back, go to school full time, um, I was like, I need to really, you know, reach out to John. That's what that was my grandfather's name. And I was like, you know, said, Hey, how's it going? You know, hope this email finds you well. Um, you know, sorry, we, you know, Phoebe's, you know, new baby, all this stuff. And he responds, well, um, I haven't had much time or ability to go out because with my stage four colon cancer and heart failure. And I'm just like taken aback because he didn't, he was kind of, he was one of those kind of reclusive people, right? That he kind of kept to himself and he didn't want to be like a burden on the family kind of thing. Um, and I was really the only one that had much contact with him. And so one, in this, in this story, I see God's providence in that, well, I, I, all of a sudden I have more time to come and be able to help you and to love on you. Now, he wasn't a believer. Um, there were some parallels that I kind of saw with him that he was like a philosophy major. And so, um, but he, was not, he wasn't a believer. My grandmother was, was Catholic and he didn't partake in any of, the, any of Catholicism. Um, but I started to come and help him come alongside him. And as, as death often does, it, it got him asking those bigger questions. And um, he didn't have any kind of semblance of really anything, I don't think. But following kind of when we look at those passages and we're, you know, we're, we're loving people and we're not just arguing for the sake of arguing, right? And we're there to do what God has called us to do, to fulfill the Great Commission, to love our neighbors ourselves. In the midst of that, he would ask those questions. He would kind of like have a survey of, like, he'd be like, well, you know, the Muslims say this about Christianity. What do you think about that? Or, you know, well, what do you think about this? And um, kind of really big, broad questions about all different kinds of religions. And then he kind of started to ask these questions that were more like oriented to Christianity and you know, I remember talking specifically to him about like why um, all the all the apostles getting martyred, except for John, was this like one of the biggest things that um, why I think that's evidence of Christ actually being resurrected because nobody would die for something they knew was was false. And so he would kind of he kind of seem like okay, okay, you know, and that kind of was the the end of the conversation. Usually that's how it happened. He would ask a question. I'll be driving him to his appointment kind of thing. Um, so he calls me one day and he's like, well, I'm starting to kind of get a little bit weaker. I feel, you know, like maybe the end's kind of coming. And really prior, I, for, I forgot one piece. Right before this, when he was asking these kinds of questions, and it was like, if anybody's ever read The Case for Christ, it was like those questions of like, well, how can I trust the New Testament? How can I trust the Gospels? All this kind of stuff. So I gave him the book. And as I would come to his house because he was in his chair he had the book right by the side of his bed or by the, his uh, chair and I would see his bookmark kind of going down you know so he's reading that he's reading it, the case for Christ and uh, he gave me this this so I gave him the book and then a couple I don't know maybe it was like a month or two after that was when he gave me this call and um, we were sitting there we were talking about different stuff and you know squaring things away and um, I see, you know, his bookmark. I'm pretty, I think he finished it. You know, it's at the bottom, right? And I was like, well, hey, John, um, I see you've been reading. Um, is there any questions that you had? And uh, he looked at me, and, you know, this is a man who has it, and he's not a church-going person. 
Um, and so he didn't have the the Christianese kind of uh, response, but he took a pause and he said, I want to congratulate you on your first convert. And now I'm, I'm like sitting here in my mind, I don't want to be like, well, actually it wasn't me. It was a whole, you know, I didn't like, like this, you know, like this whole, like, you know, it's the Holy Spirit. It's working on you and it's God. God saves you. You know, it's nothing I did, you know, this kind of thing. And, and I talked with him and, you know, he confessed faith in Christ. And about a week and a half later, he passed away. And so, um, one, that shows God's, his plan and his divine purposes and his orienting and putting things together. But also, two, it shows the importance of how that apologetics can affect that people's hearts and how God uses, again, it's not, it's not you, it's not your, how good you are at apologetics, it's God affecting, he uses all of us as means of grace, right? He he uses us as a means to spread the gospel. God could, God could just save who he wants to without any use of us. But he wants us to come in on his mission, right? He wants us to enter in on that joy. And that's the piece of it. That's part of it too, is that, you know, getting to see God's glory in, in, in the midst of that. Um, and I, I share that because... Also, keep in mind that oftentimes when we, when we share apologetics, we go and evangelize people, we have the answers to those questions, and we answer them. We don't always see the fruit of that. You know, this, it, it was such a blessing for me because actually prior to all this happening, when I first um, started going to school and I was looking at apologetics, my pastor of the church I was at in uh, Indianapolis area, he's like, well, have, have you ever, has apologetics ever like, have you ever seen like any fruit come from that? You know, and really what he was saying is like, have you ever converted anybody by, you know, your apologetic arguments? And it's like one of those things for me for God, for to like, you know, invigorate me with what I was doing for God to be like, yeah, this stuff, it has an effect. It were, you know, I use this. This is something that he uses. And so keep that in mind too, is that as we go through and we, and we talk with people, we don't always see the fruit of what we do and oftentimes like with me like when i think back um it was years you know maybe i had a dialogue with somebody that they had no they didn't see any fruit or you know i never saw that person again you know but they were able god used them to provide me with the truth and then i took that put that in my mind and then wrestled with it and then you know well then Here's the next question that I have. And so we don't always see it, but like, like Pastor Greg says, we're called to cast the seed, right? And if that's evangelism, and evangelism and apologetics are two sides of the same coin, if you're casting the seed, you're going to get the questions. So hopefully that's kind of lays out kind of what it is, what it's not, the biblical kind of warrant for it, and hopefully you can kind of see the, the uh, applicability of it. So... Um, that's all I have. Let's uh, go ahead and pray real quick. Um, dear Heavenly Father, we come to you today, Lord. Uh, we thank you for this meeting and this body. Uh, we thank you for the opportunity to come together and to uh, search your word for the truth. We thank you uh, that you use us, Lord, that you use us, the, our such broken beings um, that fail all the time, um, that you would choose us, that we would be saved by your grace and that you would use us, that we can enter in on your mission and to see 
um, what you're doing in the world and to see your glorious work. So Lord, we just uh, bless, we ask for blessings on everyone here. Please just bless our future um, meetings and time together, Lord. Um, and we just thank you for your son, Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.